Here we go. So, Screen Heat Miami. We got a so hot, then, hot, hot episode right now. Absolutely. Right now. We're going. This is all just just like pure will with Screen Heat <laughs> Miami. But we're I'm back Kevin and we're Sharpley. doing it. I'm JL Martinez. And we have intern Andre here early. Oh, yeah. How you doing, How you doing intern Andre? Doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, a little bored. Been in the house for the past, I don't know, five months, but it's all good. That's why we had to engage you. <laughs> we oh, had yeah. to make sure that your boredom was not taking in, setting in, taking over. Just getting Andre up before noon, I think, was an accomplishment today, right? (laughs) But before we get to the segment that we brought intern Andre in for, we have to give it up for our sponsors. Absolutely. Yeah, of course, Kajik Multimedia. Miami Media and Film Market. Camacol. And Cinevision. So let's just roll in. Let's roll straight into Disney. Yeah. And before, you know, we were going to do this quick intro because I know everybody wants to get to our guest, which is the exciting conclusion, part two of the Kyle Patrick Alvarez mega interview. Yes. First things first. Yeah. That interview was just phenomenal. We had to divide it in two because it was just going and we didn't want it to stop. Actually, it could have been three parts. He's such a, a prolific director and Absolutely. you know film and television who knows he's probably you know directing something right now <laughs> directing you know the path <laughs> directing the refrigerator, zoom calls. refrigerator <laughs> to the to the room and then the zoom calls that's right they should record them they'll be epic hey it's all content it's all content that's right we'll be watching that soon enough Absolutely. Yeah, the Zoom show. Thursday nights on must-see television, NBC. It's Zoomerama, starring... <laughs> Steven Spielberg Zoom. Christopher Nolan Zoom. <laughs> Tom Hanks Zoom. Spike Lee, get the right thing going Zoom. There you go. It's going to be a cornucopia of Zooming. Yep, yep. But, uh, but yeah, there's so much going on, speaking of the content world, and I know we wanted to bring in Andre to get his take because... Because we are at a split decision right now, my friend. Well, this is our first impasse. Well, maybe it's not our first, but it is a big impasse because it's a lot of money. It's a lot it's of money. A on lot the table. of money. I mean, well, of course, we're talking about Disney's bombshell of a decision to forego theatrical distribution of Mulan. Uh, th- wait a minute, exchange. they didn't forego. That 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 I think that that's the key. They're not foregoing. They never said they're not going to release it theatrically. Well, you know what? You just, you just, I think you just added more evidence to my side of the table. If I was Perry Mason, I'd be like, aha! <laughs> Brilliant series, by the way. The season finale is this Sunday. If you guys haven't binged it yet, you have an entire, what, four days? I love it. For the season finale. Oh, my God, it's so good. Anyway, Sorry to interrupt, but um, <laughs> as you were saying... As I was saying, so Disney's decision to premiere, let's say, Mulan on Disney+, Plus, not as part of the regular program offering that we're used to seeing on other platforms, i.e. Netflix, but to now charge a special, call it a PPV, pay-per-view premium of $30 to watch Whoa. the film on Disney+. Plus. I am completely against it. 
I am, I am of the Netflix school that when you are promoting a platform, it's all about subscribers and subscriber loyalty. And I think that this will long-term potentially be a negative uh, backlash against Disney in the long-term. Maybe it could be a cash grab in the short-term because of the novelty of it. But long-term, this may have been a, a strategic, if not tactical, mistake. Okay. So... If I felt like it was a long-term play, then potentially, but every other studio is doing it. They are pushing out premium VOD and they almost don't have a choice. They have this content that they've already created. Um, you know, content doesn't, it has a shelf life. Not all the content has a shelf life, but some of it does. I mean, Mulan is already a period piece, so we don't, you, know, you don't have to worry about that. But, you know, some of this content, you don't want it to end up being a period piece is one thing. But also, you know, Mulan, I don't know the exact budget, but certainly it had to be over 200 million, two, over 250. And if you're just sitting on that and you're bleeding cash, you're bleeding cash and you're looking at some of these PPOV numbers from other out, outlets, you know, what... What choice do you have? That's the way that I feel about it. I'm sure that they've looked at the numbers. They've crunched the numbers on both sides. They're looking at, look, look, Trolls, Trolls World Tour. It killed it. It really killed it in, in numbers. I mean, it made a lot of money. Um, I think that that was one of the first litmus tests to see if this PPOV was going to work in the, in the bigger scheme. The Invisible Man, it did really, really well. Now, I, I think the Invisible Man had a small window, a small theatrical window, but it killed it on, P, on PPOV and, of course, on, on regular VOD. But um, when you talk about an international hit or an international push for something like Mulan and you have a platform like Disney+, Plus, they're only releasing it for a small window. I think it's a day or two days or something like that. I think it's a great way to get a quick infusion of cash when you're hemorrhaging, you're on the table, you're just like bleeding out. You just need something. Right. No, so. look, I, I totally get it. I totally understand it. I just think if you are going to go to the PPV about fine, but don't put it on Disney plus, put it on all the other platforms, right? Put it on, you know, cable pay-per-view, put it on even Amazon. If you have to, whatever the places that people are used to going to for that model. Once they, it goes into the Disney Plus, that's where I think I have a philosophical difference of opinion on not doing that. But I think if you put it on another platform, you drive up their subscription rates and you don't drive up your own. So I think that people are going to, I ended up, I, I had to get Disney Plus again. I had um, let it expire a little bit after the Mandalorian, you know, uh -oh. but I have a four month old child so i was gonna right. have to you know to get it sooner or later anyway but right. i ended up um signing on to disney plus because of hamilton and beyonce's film i wanted to see both of those right and then of course you know i just ride it out and, and i keep it but i think mulan may have uh, been a push for me to do it if either one of those had not been released and i'm going to tell you another reason why if you look at we have family, this is just family, but I can imagine anybody for that matter. Um, 
and, and families are together. So it's not just, you know, because I have a daughter and I have a wife, but families get together, they want to watch movies. Mm. There's really, you know, when you look at the offerings right now, there's not a lot of movies that are being released. There's not. Right. And right. so this also gives Disney an opportunity to get an upper hand. It's going to drive up their subscription base. Everyone else is doing it. I'm going to watch it because I want to see Mulan. I want to see an epic movie. There's what, what epic movies have been released lately. Right. So right. Th- that's a big thing. I'm hoping that it, it pushes, you know, Tenet to be released. I'm hoping it pushes the next James Bond to be released on VVOD because I'll pay the money for right. both of those too. Absolutely. Look, I, I get it. My thing is, you know, the business model for the streaming wars, I think, has been firmly established, obviously, Netflix being the leader. And once you've bought into a monthly subscription, so let's say I don't have Disney Plus, And then after this, I think we've stated our case and we'll let Andre be the tiebreaker. Once you're on Disney Plus and you're subscribing, now I have to pay an extra $30 to see one piece of content that is part of the Disney family. Or if I'm not a subscriber, then what? I have to pay the 30 bucks plus $6 a month. So now I'm up to $36 investment just to see this one piece of content. And then I'm, I'm just sort of stuck. You know, it's a hard decision, especially now with the pandemic, with the recession, you know, average families. I know Disney is doing, you know, not doing well as a corporation, but the average family who is struggling day to day looking at how to pay their bills that extra $30 is a significant chunk where I think from a branding perspective, what Disney could do is say for one day or two days, we're going to give you this, you subscribe to Disney plus and on September 4th for 48 hours, it's going to be on there. Then we're going to pull it off again. But as long as you have an active subscription, you can watch it. And I think that builds long-term customers, long-term loyalty, and it makes the Disney brand what it's supposed to be, which is comfort food, for the American family and the American way of life. That's my case. I rest my case. Okay. I I just have one more thing to say. I think Disney is a global brand. So. Oh yeah. Well, forget the American way of life. The The the, Disney way of life. The Disney way of life. (laughs) Yes. The Disney global family. This is one for the Disney global family. Okay. Intern Andre, you're in the hot seat. and I say right after this, we need to jump into the interview and then go straight to our outro because we have other stuff to cover. But I yeah. think this is such a hot topic that it's it's eating up our intro. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, Andre. Uh, so what I mean, I I, I kind of side a little bit more with 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 JL. I don't I don't think that the the thirty dollar price tag is going to drive people in. It's more like I have Disney Plus already, so you know. Maybe I'll watch, maybe I'll cough up the 30 bucks, but I don't think, I think a lot of people will be like, wow, I got to subscribe to them and then I got to pay another $30. Like, I feel like a lot of people would, would, uh, not, not really enjoy that because one, all these Disney remakes are kind of getting like that that negative stigma now there. A lot of them aren't. There, a lot of people say like, oh, they're not as good as the originals. The only one that was uh, any good was The Jungle Book. And the uh, the main actress kind of got into a little uh, political drama there. Oh, yeah. And I see, I see a lot of people on Twitter talking about like, 
hey, maybe let's not pay $30 and let's not support this because she, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I don't know what she said. I don't know anything about that, but I kind of, it's a little odd. It's not like, um, you know, Netflix is doing uh, a movie about Dr. Dr. Ratch from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. <laughs> a, lot people, a lot of people are like, wait, I like that movie. And it's just a subscription fee. So, boom. I'll go, I'll go over there and watch that. I just feel like the $30 price tag is just a, a little much. But I guess they got to do it for lost time. I'm not sure. I, I think they do it for money. But you know what? Therein lies the rub. And I think that that's kind of um, a spot there that's a median. Maybe the price point is just punching you in the face. Yeah. Nobody wants a punch in the face. Not so, now. Yeah, maybe nine ninety nine or something like that might have been the sweet spot. But I, I'm I'm sure they're there on the balance sheet, and they're like, we need that twenty nine ninety nine at a million viewers for us to stay alive to stay stay afloat you know but uh yeah so maybe that is the sweet spot that if they had charged 9.99 there wouldn't be uh such a uh an outcry andre what you're talking about is uh the lead actress she came in support of china proper and um that was on the protests the hong kong protests and so you know I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to be sucked into it, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, right, right or wrong. But, you know, there are a lot of people on both sides. And when you have a film that's worth, you know, 500 million because, you know, prints and advertising and all the things that go into it, you know, they, ne you know, they never creative, creative budgeting. They never really make their money back. Right, JL? But, um, right. you know, with, with, uh, with that kind of price tag, uh, when you make definitive statements like that, um, sometimes that derails your property. So that's a tough one there. But yeah, I think the defense rests. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but, uh, I will, we'll throw it. To, I will we'll throw it to, to listeners. We'll throw it to you, listeners. <laughs> that's to a great comment. One. We can, there you go. ScreenHeatMiami.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Messages. Let us know your opinion. Yeah. So there we are. I think we should jump into Kyle and then we'll be back on the other side with some interesting additional controversy with the Ellen show. And then I want to talk about this it girl who's going to be on Variety's upcoming power of young Hollywood. Yeah. Um, Kyle, incredible. Another incredible uh, interview. And we're looking forward to you directing a Disney property. Absolutely. <laughs> we give you Kyle Patrick Alvarez. And so there's a tremendous um, power dynamic shift that can be really hard to adjust to, uh, right? You get two days to edit your episode and then you never see it again. And it did start to hurt me a little bit, even though I was working on shows I loved with writers I loved that were doing great work and posts on it. But for me, the, as an editor and starting as an editor, it was so weird. Um, even when the episodes were improved over my edits, but it's still so weird that there's something on TV with my name on it 
that has music needle drops in it I didn't pick, that has scenes in it sometimes you don't even shoot, right? Because especially like, you know, Counterpart, they actually had to add a cold open to one of my episodes that was scripted after I'd already left my six months in Berlin. So it was shot without me, which was totally fine. I have no, they they have to ask you to come back. But I was like, you guys are already in Berlin. It's going to cost you so much money to fly me back. Shoot the scene without me. I trust you. You know, but you, it's a weird thing. You learn to bring it back to the art and commerce thing, you learn that uh, there's essential um, uh, economic machinations of television, right? That'll lead to you having directed things that other people's names are on. Uh, you know, there's, I've had to direct scenes for other directors. In many ca- some cases, it's directors I really love and admire, so I'm really humbled by it and really appreciative of it. Um, and other times there's scenes in your episodes that you didn't direct. And sometimes they're better than you would have done. Sometimes they're worse. But you learn there's a, humi- there's a humility to the experience of it all because it's not, it's not an ego trip. It's not a power trip. You're there to serve a machine that's, that's bigger than you. And I like that. I would like to be able to balance that more with the, in, with the feature work, right? I would love to be able to balance back and forth and, and get to be a part of someone else's thing and then have my own thing. And, and so... I'm trying to find, I mean, I'm trying to build that balance, but it's tough because the TV business is so writer driven. Um, and I do write, but I'm more directorially driven. So it's, I'm now after homecoming, I had a little more leverage to be able to go in on projects and sort of say, Hey, I will have to partner with a writer on this, but I want to, I want to be the one to shape it. I want to be the showrunner, right? So TV businesses run right now. Writers are always the showrunners, but it's starting to shift a little bit. And for me, it's not a power dynamic. I, it's not a. It's not about control. It's not about any of that. It's just about I miss post production. I want to edit the work I shoot. I miss. Um, I miss sound. I got to do this all in Homecoming, so I'll bring it around to that. But like, I miss sound mixing. I miss do, running the VFX shoots. I miss that. And a lot of it's interesting. It takes time for my representation to understand that because. There's a lot of directors, and I admire, I don't think this makes me a better director, right? There's a lot of directors who they want to shoot the stuff and move on to the next shoot. They want to be on set. And I want to be on set, but then I want to be in the editing room, and I want to be doing that stuff. And I want to be at the recording sessions for the score. I want to be doing – those are the things That's those are the things my, my heart is in. And I haven't had that for five years until I got to do Homecoming. Well, you right. just said uh, two, two magic things. Um, my wife asked one thing, you know, when, when I told her that I was going to interview, which was to um, – to uh, connect on the music, you know, of, of Homecoming and of, and, and of um, the Stanford Prison Experiment. Because mm-hmm. um, we were going to move, you know, on, you know, on to Homecoming. And then, you know, after a brief, you know, moment about that, I'm going to talk about the dream team. You know, one of my dream teams of Hollywood, um, Kyle Patrick Alvarez, and another one of my uh, favorite storytellers, Sam Esmiel, who... Oh, yeah. who um, you know, Mr. Robot, character-driven, you know, also a storyteller. So can you speak on, you know, the, the music of, you know, both Stanford Prison Experiment and Homecoming and then this dream team? Yeah, I mean, Stanford was interesting. We had, I, I really appreciated the composer on there. We had very little time. You know, we had like a couple of weeks to write music for that. And um, and it was trying, with that, it was definitely the music is mood. The music is, is a little invisible, right? You almost... Hopefully it's, um, you can reach that sort of Lynchian confluence where you're not really sure where sound design ends and score begins and that kind of feeling. Um, and, and that was important with me on that. At a certain point, um, that one needed a score that blended in a lot more. As opposed, The interesting thing with Homecoming season one, uh, Sam used all old scores. So the entire score is all, um, you know, chopped and, and, 
turned up from other scores from old movies that he was referencing and some contemporary ones and, and all of that. And so for season two, trying to, um, I didn't want to try to ape too much. I wanted it to feel like it was still a part of the same show, but also had its own identity, right? We had a new lead. We had, so you had to find some key things. It's also very, very expensive to do that. Um, and I did not have the kind of money Sam had by any, because I am not Sam Esmail and I have not made Mr. Robot that defined an entire network for nearly the last seven years. So, um, you know, we also had to think about that, but we were able to hire this incredible composer, Emil Masseri, who um, had only done one movie, uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco, which was like the best score I heard, I heard all in the past like 18 months even. And, um, and he and I just got along like right away and totally got what it was. We immediately agreed we had to fight for the money to record live instruments and all of that. And he understood that the potential of what Homecoming was doing in season one that's different in TV was that the, the scenes were being scored. They were not underscored. They were overscored. Scoring music has become too much lately has become about what it's, it's okay for it to be that way, but it's become such a trend, right? What we did in Stanford where it blends in a little bit more, it's almost a little bit more um, subconscious has become the standard, right? Um, I think it, derives a lot from scores mostly moving into, sorry, that's my dog barking, but mostly moving into um, synth pads and mostly digital creation and stuff. It's, it's led to a generation of composers who can do that very successfully, but it's moved away from our composers who like, you know, John Williams was basing his music off Holst and stuff. He wasn't basing his music off of, you know, Maurice Jarret wasn't basing his music off of, uh, it's just the way music has changed. I, I lament, I lament that we can't have like big bombastic anthems and themes over our scores anymore. And Emil and I both responded to that same idea of, oh, how can we create a TV score that's like big and memorable and has themes that you remember and song and sounds that are, and it's interesting because I've seen a couple people, I don't know, people always tag you on negative things and people are like, why is this music so loud? And I'm like, it's not that the music's loud. It's that we're telling you to listen to it when you've had decades of being conditioned to, just kind of forget that there is music there, right? And so yeah. um, I love, that's like, you know, that's the De Palma thing. It's like, you know, the music is so big and it's almost ridiculous at times. And I miss that. I want to, I hopefully can keep on doing that. <laughs> but but not ridiculous. We, we interviewed Carlos Rafael Rivera, who oh, um, won the Emmy for, um, and, and he's a, another university, he's a professor there, but um, another university Miami connection who won the Emmy for Godless. And, you know, same way, you know, who were your, you know, John Williams, you know, who were the people that you connected with? And that score, you know, even for, uh, even for uh, Godless, you know, had this bombastic feeling and it, and it adds, you know, to, you know, the feeling of it all. Um, but with uh, Sam Esmail, you know, uh, directing the first season and then you coming in for the second season, was there an overlap there at all of conversation about, you know, uh, um, what was done in the first season and then you moving forward to the second season? And then also Janelle Monet is one of my favorite talents. And yeah. she certainly has a connection to Miami because, you know, our very, our very own Barry Jenkins and Moonlight. Uh, can you speak on the overlap with Sam Esmiel and then speak a little bit on uh, that, that experience with the main character of the second season of Homecoming, Janelle Monet? Yeah, Sam, it's interesting. I had an intense amount of love for season one of Homecoming. And so um, Sam, as like a presence, was intimidating to me, right? I said early on, I was like the only person I 
feel I need to impress as Sam, you know, and he really loved the season. And so that's the thing I like bring with me everywhere and was very kind about it. And everyone was like, he wouldn't be nice to you about the season if he didn't like it. You know, the people like he does really like, you know, that kind of thing. Um, he was so busy with season four of Mr. Robot, like in, uh, unimaginably busy. Like, you know, people always say they're busy. He was legitimately busy. Like you couldn't believe. And so he, you know, he didn't create Homecoming. It was a podcast that Mike and Eli created. Yeah. He then is a creator on the show and he show ran season one. So Mike and Eli were writing it, but Sam was the end all say all of it all, of course, as, as he, as he will. I say that, I say that with a, a ton of uh, jealousy, admiration and respect. And, um, me coming in, it was a different kind of power play because now Mike and Eli were going to be the showrunners in the top of the food chain. And then I was going to be hired to do every episode and be an executive producer. Um, but still, it was still going to be their show, right? And so it's a weird thing now where they understood and um, and thankfully, and were really respectful to me, if you hire someone to do every episode, though, you still have to give them that space. And so part of what I said early on, I was like, I want this job because I want to see this through. I want to see every frame of this through. I want to pr- approve every frame. I want to fight for every frame. I, um, I want it to, you know, every frame to feel... Um, tailored and manicured and fought for and I want to be there for it um and if you don't want someone who's going to be there all the way through like don't hire me and um and they and they fortunately took to that really well and of course it's very difficult because now you have three people who all need to agree right and you're going to have to it's never going to happen even the three most like caring loving collaborative people in the world are always going to have some disagreements along the way and um and you know I I believe, and I think they would say the same, that we were all really gracious to each other. I think we all made the compromises where we needed to for something, for a triangle to make something, you know, to, to make a square in a way. Um, and But Sam, you know, in a lot of ways, especially early on, well, once he started seeing edits and stuff, was just really like, gave a couple notes. He was really hands-off. I think he's been really smart in growing his company to know that when you grow your company to do it successfully, you have to trust other people. And I know that's hard for him, right? I've read a lot of interviews with him, um, especially about season one of Mr. Robot and how hard that was for him to be, to know what he wanted every frame to look like, but to not be the director um, and why he directs every episode of it since, you know, those kind of things. And so um, I know it took a lot of uh, restraint on his end. Um, and I, this is all conjecture, right? Um, yeah. But he, gave, he did. He gave us that space to make it and to make it how we wanted it to. And so for me, I was actually the one saying, no, we owe something to season one. I think in some ways they were like, I could have come in and been like, we're going to shoot this all like handheld 16 millimeter or gone in a totally different style direction. And there could have been room for that. But I was sort of like, well, you have the best looking shot and shot show on TV. So let's not let's get make it its own thing because it is a new story and it is a new lead character but let's let's define the things now that we bring over from season one are the things that say this is what homecoming is and what it feels like and so for me it was um the challenge was though about was studying season one of homecoming and then also being given the raw footage once i got hired which was tremendously helpful to watch the dailies and um and you write, you try to, that was like obsessing over season one, watching it really carefully and not just in a, oh, they did this shot, right? It was like, why did they do that shot? And how you're trying to get in the head of how the decisions were being made. And so, um, so that you don't just copy, but you, uh, and you take the inspiration from it. And so it was really, I mean, Sam and his decisions in what homecoming would be loomed over all of it 
but in a lot of ways by my choice, uh, not by anyone else telling me, well, Sam did it this way, so you have to do it. In fact, it might have been, might have been more the studio being like, well, Sam did it that way, but that was really expensive, so can you do it a different way? You know, it was a lot of, if anything, it was a different, uh, it, was a, it was an interesting experience. I was probably the one saying more like, no, 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 we can't forget what Sam did in season one. We have to, we have to keep that going. I, I was probably the biggest champion for that. Um, because yeah, I, but a hundred percent, it's it's Kyle Patrick Alvarez. I mean, I could feel you know you could feel from you know the COG to the Stanford to this your stamp, you know your 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 heart and your soul. And you know I emailed you that too, so I appreciate that a lot. And it's it's weird. I mean, for me, my my uh, I certainly have some more grounded tastes, like in terms of how I approach a scene or a dialogue scene. Um, Sam obviously thrives, and um, his compositions just going. He thrives using a lot of negative space and stuff. So I pushed myself a little bit in that direction, but also tried to tell myself, like, it's okay if it feels a little different. It, the inspiration just has to come from the same place, but I also still can't, I can't show up thinking, what would Sam do? Because then you get, you end up with a carbon copy that is less, you know, that is never going to be as good as the first, uh, or never even has a chance to be as good as the first, right? I'll let other people decide if it's as good as the first, but um and so that was, it was an interesting psychological, you know, a year of a psychological experiment on myself of like, okay, cool. I get all these toys I've never had before, right? Camera equipment I've never been able to even dream of using before. All of VFX, I mean, there's an intense amount of VFX work in it that's hopefully mostly invisible um, uh, because, you know, we, we, we're shooting, you know, em, em, small empty dirt fields for gigantic farms and stuff. And, uh, and so there was a lot of new things both at my disposal, but those also bring a lot of new challenges. And then to tap, tap, tap into Janelle, um, I mean, she's just like an extraordinary presence um, on camera and off. And she knows... I think like any good star is, and I know this even from thinking back to my, my time working for Warren, um, even though he wasn't working, you never, you're never not a movie star when you're a movie star, you know? And I say that with actually respect, like we would with Janelle every Monday and it was a really tough shoot and she had to work every day really fucking hard. And every Monday me and the camera operator would be like, so did you have a week? Were you Janelle this weekend or were you Janelle Monet this weekend? And she would always, always be like, well, I don't know. I was in another city performing and doing a show on Saturday and I think yesterday but I don't even really know what day it is I mean she has she lives this um what must be this incredibly I mean taxing life that she does every day with a smile on her face with with the high expectations that other people are going to be working as hard as around uh, around her as hard as she is and I love that because that's the way I like to work too I will work until I bleed I literally slipped a disc making this season of this show but I want around me to be work, to be taking inspiration from that and not feel like bogged down by that. So I think we really um, bonded on a work ethic level and a um, in sort of a um, a spirit of like positivity level, you know. And so she just was a joy that way. Even though I was very stressed out on the shoot and have to learn a lot about learned a lot about how to manage my stress for uh, the sake of my because it was a longer shoot than I'd ever done before. So um, there's a physical side of that that's much harder for everybody else. Right? I have to spend all day just like sitting in a chair. So I don't mean this as a gripe or a complaint, but you also just have to learn if you're going to be doing a year's worth, we didn't shoot for a year, but a year's worth of 15 to 18 hour days of work every day. Um, and you're not 20 anymore. <laughs> you're looking at 40. You have to learn how to pace that. And I, I didn't know that yet on the show. And I, I think I know it now. <laughs> so that's my long yeah. home. 
<laughs> no, it's great. And of course, you know, you have the legendary Chris Cooper. And, oh, yeah. um, and really, this is a, you know, it's a breakout for Stephen James. So, yeah. and, you know, there's even, and I, I, I can say this because I'm on the outside, you know, but there's, you know, some Emmy talk, you know, for, for, for Stephen James in, in the breakout. And this was really, you know, his season as well. You know, Janelle Monet has the name, Chris Cooper has a name, but, you know, big breakout season for him. So, you know, I loved it. This is one of my favorite uh, for this you know, it's it's really interesting what's going to happen, you know, with the Emmys coming up. We don't know what's going to happen, but of, of this cycle. It's one of my favorites for this cycle. So, you know, again, I told you that for me, this is a, a very big treat. Um, so moving forward, I just wanted to touch just, you know, kind of briefly on Tales of the City. I'm sure that that had some, you know, kind of personal um, uh, 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 place in your heart, you know, for, for that particular project. And then also, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was saying... I was just watching old Tales of the City episodes last night. Like the original run of that show, I love. Someone, I was in Miami and someone gave me the VHSs of that show. And um, it's the, one of the only times when they announced like a revival of it and that Laura and Olympia were going to be a part of it. It's one of the only times I've told my agents, I was like, I will, like, I was actually going to take a, a little bit of a break when that job came up around. And my agents were like, well, cause I was like, I want to try to do a pilot or get to do every episode. I was like, I want to wait for that kind of opportunity or go make a feature. And they're like, are there any exceptions? And I was, <laughs> I was like, um, I think the only exceptions at the time were uh, the leftovers, tales, tales of the city. And I said one other thing probably was, Oh no, it might've just been Watchmen. Watchmen's writers room might've been gearing up. I think was what it was. And it was one other thing. I was like, I, I was like, I don't want to hear anything unless any of those come calling or you can get me in a room on them. And Tales of the City came calling and it was about the finale. So that was one of those times where I was like, oh, I have to go do this. Like, I try to know why I'm going to do something. And a lot of times it's mostly because of the characters of the story. Um, secondarily, it can be because of uh, a shooting location. I don't mean for vacation, but I mean, like getting, I wanted, I loved Counterpart and I love being a part of the show, but I also really wanted the experience of going to do international production to learn what that was like um, and to get to do something in a genre space. And, uh, and so, or sometimes it's talent you get to work with. So there's always different reasons. With Tales of the City, it was first and foremost, this will be the only chance in my life to get to be a part of something called Tales of the City. I don't want to miss out on it. You know, it was totally like a FOMO job and I'm really grateful I did it. Cause I got that experience. I had to be on those sets. I'd watched episodes of, uh, you know, on it for years and be on those sets and with those actors and in that world. So it was a, uh, it was like, like the gay boy equivalent of getting to be like on a star Wars set or something. You know what I mean? Where you're like, that's <laughs> and that's the other apartment. And you know, you get to walk around those sets and shoot scenes in them. And that's just a total uh, a thrill to get to do that. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, absolutely, that's great. I mean, I, I love the fact that you've had such a wide breadth of experience experience between the indie film world and that struggle and then doing all this amazing television work and then again the sort of unique experience of directing an entire season of something like that uh, that you just did uh, on the Amazon Prime series which is just dropped I think May 20th so all our listeners who haven't seen it yet it is very bingeable so definitely I would say check it out but you know I just kind of want to know you know before we kind of wrap things up what's next for you in terms of you know your career whether it's television film combination of both um you know hard to it's a little hard to say with covid i'm trying to um i'm uh i'm not a particularly patient person i normally like i like working i want to be working i'm trying to learn patience i'm trying to realize that things are going to and there's been some opportunities to start shooting in the u.s and very soon um and 
I don't know if we're ready as a country to start shooting. And I mean that even just in an apolitical way. I just mean like there, we have to look at each job and what the uh, balance is of people needing to work, right? People needing to earn a living versus the risk we're putting them against. And so um, each project is its own thing, right? So each job or each story now has to be viewed within the lens of how safely can we make this thing. And, um, and so I'm just trying to take some time and tell myself it's okay. It's, I have, and I say, I know this is a tremendously privileged thing to say. So I say it with humility um, that I can afford to, after just having done homecoming for the last year, I can afford a little bit of time. I, I try to, I try to, if I can give anyone any advice, like live a deliberately frugal life when you can keep your costs down. Because if you're in, if you're in an artistic pursuit, the hardest thing is when you have to take a job. Um, uh, that can lead to, um, that's when the thing you love to bring it full circle, the thing you love is becomes the thing you have to do. It becomes the obligation. Um, and it's a tricky, and sometimes you're, you're not going to always love, you know, not, you know, the best, best marriages aren't always filled with love, right? You always have your tribulations and those are always going to exist. But I am in a position where I can afford to make choices and be okay with trying to take some time. So I'm not saying I won't work during, during COVID times. I'm not waiting on a vaccine. I don't think that's healthy for anyone to do, but I'm also trying to cautiously approach each thing. I've been really wanting to try to get a feature going again. And even an indie feature. I mean, I have a script and, Producers are coming on board soon, but they were, it's a very weird script. Um, and so we're trying to get that going, but that's a really small movie. And just yesterday, a producer was like, well, look, we're going to have to make this really cheaply. And I was like, that's the world I, I started in. And I'm scared of going back only because I've been spoiled with TV budgets for the last five years. But I, I don't want to be the filmmaker who considers going. I've never thought the goal is for the budgets to go up. That's never been my my goal. My goal has always been to be able to jump around and just follow what, let the stories dictate and not become any one kind of filmmaker. I mean, I love, a lot of my fil favorite filmmakers are easily identifiable by the genres they worked in, right? Hitchcock was defined by the genre he worked in. But I also love the Ang Lees, or especially the, the early earlier Ang Lees, where he was bouncing, I, you would when you would hear, regardless of how the movie turned out, when you heard Ang Lee was going to go do a Hulk movie, you were like, what the fuck is Ang Lee going to do with the Hulk? Like, oh, cool. Like, I want to be able to hopefully aspire to that, where people um, want to let you, like Kerry Fukunaga's managed to pull that off, right? And just a few projects. So I'm well behind him. So I say that and uh, I aspire to that. Like, Kerry Fukunaga gets James Bond and you're like, oh, what is he going to do with that? I can't wait to see what that looks like. Or when he was going to do it, you know, and was writing that, you're like, oh, what is Kerry Fukunaga doing it going to be like? And and so for me, that's the dream is to where you're not, uh, you're not just getting sent scripts because, um, because you've done something in that space. You're getting sent scripts because you've shown a versatility that excites people for what you're going to, to do with it. So I'm trying to just follow my heart that way and not sort of say oh, I'm only doing this now, or I'm only doing this size of things now, or even I'm only going to direct every episode now. Like if there's an, ep especially now with the film industry coming to a halt, if there's an episodic job on a show I love, I don't want to ever think I'm above that now because I've been an EP, you know? I mean, I, my threshold for why I go do it might be a little bit higher, um, but I just always want to be open and working and, and, and getting to have new experiences and learning new things. And that's the great thing about filmmaking is it's so varied, right? It's so different. Every job is so wildly different. The people you work with are different. And, um, you know, the older you get, you realize the experience is, is in a lot of ways is more important to, or just as important, I should say, is the final thing. And so, um, 
just trying to take, that's a very like a uh, spiritual answer to it. I wish I could just be like, actually, I'm going to direct Avengers five, you know, but <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. I'd love to see the, uh, only on a, no, they are on Avengers 5. I was actually right about that. <laughs> <laughs> Very well-educated guess. But yeah, I think, you know, you just kind of unloaded a lot of great wisdom, I think, for sort of how to approach a career, particularly in the sort of unpredictable times that we're in. Uh, but, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, we always kind of wrap things up with a two-parter. And unless Kevin has anything else, I think it's time for our sort of signature ending to our podcast. Uh, and it is a two-part question. I'll go ahead and ask the first part. Uh, and so part one is, uh, and this is kind of taking into your head, talk about epic scores, the uh, back to the future scenario. So if you could take Cal Alvarez today to speak to a young Cal Alvarez, whether he was swimming at the Biltmore or at UM Film School, what advice would you give yourself knowing what you know now? Man, swimming at the Biltmore now sounds so, sounds so much more posh than it was to me at the time. Wait, what's the name of the, the place in Coral Gables? Is it still open? That was like the public pool with the caves built into the coral. Anyways, I swam there a lot too. Yeah, it's still open. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They, they may be taking a COVID break, but yeah, it's still around for sure. <laughs> what's it called? I can't remember now. It's the, um, it's not the Venetian. It's the, um, but it's something like that. Um, is it the Venetian pool though? Is the Venetian, no? Yeah. Maybe I'll say, but you know, I would say the advice I would give, um, because it's still the advice I give to myself every day now, is to um is to trust that things will work out. Um trust that and by that I mean every time I finish something, I I'm driven by one uh, fear and that's I'll never work again, right? That always that always exists, right? I always feel that maybe a little less with each project, but I think I would just say, um, you know, learn patience earlier. Like learn, if I could learn to have been a little more patient in my twenties, um, I think I would have uh, been happier or enjoyed the moment more. Um, and I would also, uh, say to not put all your eggs in one basket, um, to, I think with the first film, you maybe kind of have to, right. Cause you have to get that thing. You have to have one. If someone goes, Hey, you want to make a movie? What do you want to do? And you go, well, I've got four things I want to do. It's not as, it's, it's a little like, Oh, okay. Well, how driven are you? But after you've done that, or after you've gotten that at that point with COG in particular, I was so monomaniacally obsessed with just that one pursuit of just making that movie. And it led to, um, it led to some unhappiness for me and it led to me putting too much value on the final film and how it's received or what it is. And I, and I, I nearly fell into the same trap on homecoming. Cause I was like, I've been working in TV for five years for this opportunity. And um, you put too much weight on the, on what the final thing is, where the truth is it's, there's a lot of that that's out of your hands or there's a lot of that that's left up to chance or the, the quality of other people's work. A lot of that where um, I wish I'd known to just say, Hey, let me, I have the bandwidth to pursue and to think about three or four things at once to a certain point. Right. And to not love just one thing, you know, to be polyamorous with my uh, film pursuits <laughs> so that, you know, it's a fickle business and something's going to fall apart. And when you, when something falls apart, you don't want that to be the end of you. Um, so no one project should ever totally define you. Wow. And that, that's a great lead in into the second part, which is uh, what advice would you give filmmakers, content creators, storytellers now to help them to move forward in their career, whether they're, you know, beginning or whether they're already, you know, into their career? Um, 
Yeah, I think, you know, the best, the most common advice, right, is people say, oh, go make something, right? Um, like that's all, that's so much easier said than done. I think whenever anyone says that, it comes from a bit of a place of privilege, right? Because it comes from someone who, if we go back to like Virginia Woolf, who had a room of one's own, right? Someone who had either the financial resources or the space or a room to stay in. Like, it's too easy to say that to someone who might have the love of the pursuit, um, but not the means to be able to pursue it. So I'm loath to say that because I think it's more nuanced, but it, there is some truth to that. And what I would say is, is try to, if you're young and, and you're interested in filmmaking, try to learn about all aspects of it. Um, you're going to be best at it if you don't just love one thing. If, you're, if, you're, if you think you're only interested in directing because that's just the person who sits in the chair and calls the shots, you're probably not actually in love with directing what it really is, you know? So really like learn about it. It's a craft. Um, make sure, l learn about it so that when you can pursue it, um, or when you pursue a job in that world, you understand what everyone's doing there and learn that it's a, um, it's a complicated business and that it is a business, um, you know? And, uh, and yeah, and don't think you're above learning how a camera works, right? And learning how a lens works. Like that is something that is part of your job. It is not your job to be the one that grabbed the camera, right? You don't need to, you don't need to be David Fincher who can literally do everybody's job on set, who can say, move the fill light two feet in and, and change the, to take the ND filter out and blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, like that, that, that doesn't define greatness in filmmaking, but I think it gives you, your understanding of it gives you respect and appreciation for what it ultimately is, which is the greatest collaborative medium that exists, artistic medium. And that's what it is. And if you don't love the that it's collaborative, you can pick up a pen and you can pick up a paintbrush and you can go make something great on your own um, that doesn't require millions of dollars and thousands of people. <laughs> so if you don't want that, don't do it. Or find a way to set the camera. People have done those movies where they set the camera up themselves and they start it, they do it all on their own. And if you can be Shane Carruth, then go be Shane Carruth because there's very there's only one of them a generation or two of them a generation. So in that case, go do that. But if you're someone like me, just start learning. Learn every aspect of the business and its history. Absolutely. Wow. That's, wow. That, that's, that's a, a great cap on this. Um, there was something that I did want to say before we, we jumped into the last part. And this is this is just a selfish part of me because I'm a huge Lindelof fan, and you oh. mentioned a couple of his projects. Leftovers is one of my favorite favorites, and oh. you know I I think of Leftovers in, you know especially in this time. Um, a Lindelof this 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 is now my new kind of uh, dream team. A Lindelof Kyle Patrick Alvarez um, collaboration. You know I'd love I'd love to see that. You know. He has known, I have said that from the beginning and I will always say that. And um, Watchmen only proved that like 30 times over. Um, Leftovers is, you know, by the time it ended, just like the most aspirational work on TV I can imagine doing and, uh, and getting to, and I got very close to being a part of it. And uh, it will crush me forever that I didn't. Um, but I was campaigning for an episode, an episode in season two that ended up being my favorite episode of the entire series. And I think about it all the time, but uh, Craig did an incredible job directing that episode and the, the few afterwards he directed. And um, yeah, he's one of those people that, you know, when we talk about, 
directing and uh, TV directing can be a humbling experience because you're answering to the writers. That's one of the rare writers. My only flaw, my fault in maybe working for him would be that I'd probably never challenge him. I would just be like, yeah, whatever, whatever you say. Okay, cool. Here's the, I probably wouldn't be like, what if this scene was actually at this location instead? You know, then I probably would never ask that stuff because I'd just be like jaw dropped the whole time. But yeah, I would, uh, I would do anything to be in that, in that, uh, in that world uh, in terms of how he thinks and uh, his ambition. Right? Yeah. His storytelling ambition, not his scope ambition, right? There's a difference, difference there. But I have to say, you know, I'm, I'm a huge uh, Kyle Patrick Alvarez fan. Um, I, 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 everything that I've, I've seen of yours that you've done, I've loved it. I didn't just, you know, like it. Um, I, I go back to it. I watch it again. So I'm really looking forward to, you know, what you're doing, whatever you do next, whether it's television, film. Now, I don't know. It could just be, you know, this podcast, I loved it, you know, any, any, anything that you do. So, you know, please keep me abreast and aware. Um, this has been, uh, we've had, you know, tremendous uh, success now with Screen Heat, you know, Oscar winners and Emmy winners and nominated and all these people. And, and, and you know, people that, you know, maybe had not, you know, really necessarily, necessarily done a lot, but then they moved on to do big, you know, big things. But uh, this has been a real, real treat. Oh. Uh, absolutely. So thank you so much. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate it getting to talk to you guys. I appreciate you guys giving me the time and also being able to talk. I've been so much press for homecoming and so much of that's like anecdotes about the show or what, how fun was it working with Janelle? Like those kind of stories. And I love doing that, but I love when I can speak to hopefully like hopeful filmmakers or whoever might be listening and talking about the technical process of it and um, the emotional experience of making it. It's the stuff that, uh, you know, people don't talk about enough and uh, only because it's the stuff I want to hear, right? I miss DVD audio commentaries. I miss doing them. I miss listening to them. Uh, it's sad that they went away, but they went away because there was like four of us listening to them. And so anything can do that feels like that, you know, if I hadn't had Paul Thomas Anderson's like 20 hours worth of commentaries on Boogie Nights, I don't know if I would have ever really known what filmmaking is. So right. um, anytime I can contribute to the discourse, I'm, I'm grateful for the chance. So thank you guys so much. And, um, and uh, yeah, it'll be something I'll, I'll, hopefully I'll, we'll get the opportunity to make something soon enough that we'll have another reason to talk soon. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I just wanted to echo real quick Kevin's sentiments. Thank you so much for doing this. And thanks, Kevin, for hooking up this interview. It's just been an amazing journey. And, you know, just kind of to bring it again full circle to homecoming, I'd love to see you make something in Miami one day when it's safe, maybe even at the Biltmore. Maybe we'll have to come up with something there. So I, there's, a, there's, there's something to be, there's something, it's interesting. I, I get sent Miami projects, but they're always, um, they're always either like something like the Baker and the Beauty, which is fine. I don't mean that as a criticism, just not something I would have much of a take on, you know? I was sent a book recently that's coming out soon or, or maybe just came out that was really good, but it was um, so sprawling. And I think they wanted to do a series, like a crime series out of it. They really need like a showrunner, like, like a writer. I mean, like a writer to build it from it. But it was all about basically just the history of Miami from 1979 to 19, the end of 1980 and how fucking insane everything was at that time. You had like race riots happening at the same time. You had literally tens of thousands of Cubans, you know, that's when Castro opened up the prisons and it was just this fascinating multi-tier. It was like the wire, but in Miami in 1979. You got to do it. You got to do, do it. it. Please, do it. please. <laughs> I'm going to send you an email every week. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you very much. And um, we're signing off. We're back. That was a great part, too.
Uh, what a great conclusion. Wow, what a journey. We're holding them out like Disney, man. Yeah. Two parts. The sequel. <laughs> Call Patrick Alvarez the sequel. Maybe we should charge a premium for the second part. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that price point has to be right. Well, 50 cents. <laughs> 50 cents. <laughs> 99 99. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love yeah, it. That was that, that was pretty that was one of our most controversial um screen heats there. Ah yeah. Intro. Yeah, yeah. That's that's how you got to build a buzz. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of buzz going on. There's a lot of controversy going on though. Oh, the industry is rife with controversy. You know, I wanted to jump into this because now Warner Media is involved, but you know, the the long-running Ellen daytime talk show uh, is flooded with controversy. Everything from a toxic work environment to, yeah. uh, you know, sexual abuse to, you know, uh, Ellen turning a blind eye to now their DJ, DJ Tony, which had two stints on the show saying that, yeah, it was a toxic environment. I guess his wow. name is Tony Okung, Okungboa. Tony Okungboa. No, no, it's, it's, it's uh, yeah, this is someone that was on several years ago. He had two different stints. The last one actually ended in 2013. So he was on oh, I guess, okay. uh, early on, and then he came back for another stint. But uh, there's an article in ET saying that uh, the show's original DJ says he did experience and feel the toxicity oh, the in the workplace. Yeah, the original. It's uh, DJ Tony. Uh, okay. He has, you know, he has an Instagram following as well, and he pub- publicly posted about that. Uh, a couple of other actors as well have kind of chimed in, saying that, uh, including Brad Garrett, apparently saying that, yeah, it was a it was a poorly run system in terms of how they treated uh, employees and staff members, et cetera. So there's a lot a lot to kind of unpack there with a show that, again, going back to branding, built on the power of positivity and and being nice to people. So it's just uh, something something the, the the carpet wasn't matching the drapes there. <laughs> I'm ready for the Lifetime movie, really. I mean, that, that, that is a big deal. Talk mm-hmm. about conflict. Yeah. Certainly that brand was built on kindness and happiness. And, you know, to see this sort of toxic environment underneath the rug, underneath right. the rug, that is just unthinkable, really. You know, that's really Ellen's brand is, and and that brand extends past just the show. You know, everyone remembers she had one of the biggest uh, Oscar moments in history. In history. The selfie that broke the internet. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. That's our (laughs) whole brand. So, you know, you have to be thinking this extends beyond the show and extends into anything that Ellen is going to do. And, you know, this controversy, from what I understand, you know, kind of started off with um, Ellen having a guest, I can't remember which celebrity it was, uh, saying that uh, she wasn't invited to her birthday party. And the guest is like, I did invite you. And Mm -hmm. then the guest's assistant came back with proof that Ellen was in so fact invited to the birthday show, to the birthday party. And so, it just started snowballing from there. An employee said, you know, this is really the opposite of what Ellen purports to be, you know, the show's base. And another employee came out. And then when COVID hit, they did run remote from Ellen's house and they didn't bring in the regular crew. 
they came and brought in a non-union crew. So that just added to the avalanche. It just snowballed from there. And, I mean, and this happened really fast, just over two or three months. And that is a cash cow. I mean, the biggest daytime talk show now, now over the past, from the past few years. I just don't even know how they'll be able to fix this because then you also have producers that are being blamed in a more substantive way for feeding into that toxic environment, the three, three uh, producers, and their sexual harassment issues that are now being tossed around. I can't pinion one way or the other because I'm not there. I wasn't there. I can just talk about what people are saying. So this is just crazy. Yeah, it's a, it's a while. I mean, when, just when we thought 2020 couldn't get any more absurd, <laughs> we have what was purportedly one of the nicest personalities in Hollywood. Uh, you know, her, at least her brand, you know, because at the end of the day, the show is her personality. It's her brand. The name Ellen is the show. It's her. Uh, and even though, you know, she may have been, you know, we know how productions work. She could have been sheltered from a lot of that behavior uh, by the, the executive producers. So she may have not been aware on a day-to-day basis how exactly the show was being managed. But, you know, everyone is saying, look, you know, your name is on the marquee. You know, you, it's your vision. It's your, it's, it's your show. Uh, that there needed to be some kind of sort of responsibility taken. And obviously it looks like they're taking steps now to correct it. And so, you know, it, now it's a question, I think, for, for her and the future of the show, whether or not the audience, let alone Hollywood, believes in second chances. And I think that's yeah. where she is. Right. Well, th- well, they're not letting it go. And I, I think that there's going right. to be a, a window because of COVID, you know, that may help right. to buffer this a bit. It, is, it, is it a Warner Media show? Right. Is that you said Warner Media? It is a Warner Media. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. a Warner Media show. Yeah. 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 Okay. So that's. That's another major player in the industry that's trying to figure things out while also having to put these fires out. It's probably an an unwelcome distraction at the moment, I would imagine. Yeah, my prediction is that they're going to uh, ride the storm out. That's my prediction. Yeah, I say, yeah. I think they're going to make a lot of changes at the, like I said, probably at the executive level. uh, And then, you know, kind of- The heads are going to roll. Oh yeah, absolutely. So that's, I'd hate to be in that boardroom. <laughs> I hate to be on that zoom call. So, so yeah, that's, it's crazy, but, but yeah, you know, I, I kind of wanted to end it also on some positivity. Uh, this week variety is premiering. It's, it's power of young Hollywood edition, which is a staple of variety recently. And there is a, a specific girl, an it girl, uh, uh, an internet it girl that is making waves apparently not only on YouTube, on Instagram. Uh, she's on TikTok. She has her own line of merch. She has her own podcast and she has a coffee company and she's like 20 years old. Oh, Emma Chamberlain. Yeah. Nice. So nice. she is a, she's one of the featured persons and, and she talks about the importance of creating content, not only during COVID, but in the digital age about specifically that diversifying your portfolio, being involved, you know, not having having all your quote content eggs in one basket. So if YouTube isn't working out for you, go to Instagram, then go to Facebook, then you got TikTok, but there's controversy around TikTok. So, you know, now she may have to pivot again, you know, Uh, but she has a podcast, she has merchandise, she has a loyal following 10 million subscribers on YouTube for a girl that's barely into her twenties. So this is, yeah, absolutely. Just that's definitely the power of young Hollywood. Just really quick. TikTok 
um, it looks like the Trump administration is trying to force TikTok to shutter. And Microsoft right. is now jumping into the fray for a purchase. So we, we're waiting with bated breath. That's going to be a huge power move if Microsoft is able to pull that off. You know, if they're able to absolutely abscond TikTok, that's going to really be a, a big boom to their bottom line. I, look, I love, I love a positive story. Microsoft turned it around. Uh, really, they were seen as the underdog, the old stodgy, um, old school company. And they, re- they just really turned their thing around. So if they get TikTok, I'm buying more stock. I already have Microsoft stock. I'm going to buy more. So look for that. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. That definitely would be an infusion of youth, uh, you know, particularly with um, influencers like, you know, uh, Emma Chamberlain on the platform. And I think that, like you said, much needed infusion of youth into the brand. And, you know, if they can get it away from the, the, the Chinese parent company controversy and bring it back into the U.S. soil, I think it is an important platform that a lot of young people are are moving towards. Yeah, or they're on. It, it, it has made substantive change um, in terms of uh, many different areas from politics to social movements to the list goes on and on. And it is a really strong push in terms of, you know, that whole generation, uh, generation uh, Z and A, A, you know, the new generation. I did want to leave one more positive note. I know uh, we really, really have to jump. Tyler Perry, he pulled it off. He produced both of his shows, no COVID. They had three early on. They got him out. His model, well, he has a 330-acre studio, so they're very isolated. But um, I I really have to give it up for Tyler Perry for pulling that off. I mean, wow. You want to talk about, you know, and I think that that's going to open up the door for, um, for him to do even more productions there at that studio. You know, studios are overloaded. Before we went into COVID, you know, all these studios were at a 90% occupancy. There just aren't enough studios in the world. So I think that Tyler Perry, once again, super smart move. He um, is not only, you know, producing hits, but I think that his studio itself is just going to crank and crank and crank. Um, I'm looking for Tyler Perry, you know, running into the billions by over the next, you know, year, two years. So, oh yeah, he is definitely prediction. a media mogul. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I, I'm a big fan as well. Uh, he has really set the gold standard for production now in the call it the post-COVID or during COVID world. And I really, you know, credit to him, his team, and you know, obviously, he happened to have essentially the perfect facility for something like this. Yeah, uh, repurposing an old army base in Atlanta into this massive content creation um, uh, compound essentially, which is really like, it's like a summer camp for the film industry, for the film and TV <laughs> industry. That's so, right. Good for him. Yeah, yep. he's just brilliant, brilliant man. And, and I wish him all the, the best and continued success because uh, we need more positive stories like that in our industry for sure. We need you on the show, Tyler Perry, too. Same that was an, yeah, that was an official invitation, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm Kevin Sharpley. I'm J.O. Martinez. And this is Screen Heat Miami. We'll hear you next week. Dolly.